We have been so privileged at First Pentecostal Church over the last couple of days to be with Pastor Raymond Woodward, pastor of a great church in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. As he has poured his heart and soul into us. We had such a great staff retreat, such uh, insight, just unbelievable teaching, and the Spirit of God moving, message in tongues and interpretation. God has highly favored this church. He has blessed us, and we are blessed to have pastors and ministers of this caliber to come down and to be with us and be away from their own services and their own churches. I want to say how much I appreciate Pastor Raymond Woodward being here. Over the last few years, he has preached some messages at conferences that are still ministering to me, even this very day, have blessed me, and we are so delighted that he is with us in Palm Bay, Florida. I wonder if you would make him feel welcomed at the First Pentecostal Church in Palm Bay. God bless you, Brother Woodward. Thank you for being here. Praise the Lord, everybody. What an honor and delight it is to be here with you. And I'm from New Brunswick, Canada. If you go out and get on the 95 and drive straight north through New York and Boston and New England, 95 dead ends at the U.S.-Canadian border, one hour from my house. So come see me. Don't do it in the winter. I promise you, you won't like it. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I thank God for your pastor. Uh, and his family, his voice, and his ministry goes far, far beyond the walls of this sanctuary and the boundaries of this city and county. And I thank God for him, his burden for missions around the world. You are served by an incredible first family, and you're very, very blessed. And uh, I thank the Lord that I get to count him a friend. Uh, go ahead and be seated. We're going to walk to uh, a lot of Scripture this morning. But I want to begin with... Uh, just kind of a, by introduction, a story. This, uh, my, my apostolic roots uh, begin with a young man named Leonard. And uh, Leonard, uh, he was uh, raised in a family that um, really wasn't Pentecostal by any stretch of the imagination. They were a little bit religious, and they wanted uh, him to grow up and emulate his uncle, uh, who was a, a preacher in a particular denomination. If he was going to be religious, they wanted him at least to do that. And uh, so that was kind of his life path and his life track. And uh, the Holy Ghost messed that all up because a revival came to the little rural community in New Brunswick, Canada that he lived in. It's not even a village today. It's just a long road with a bunch of farms on it. And there was a little community church, and he went there. He got curious about what was going on, and he went to some revival services. Now, nobody had told them back then that you shouldn't have revival services every night between Christmas and New Year's. Nobody told them that yet, and so that's what they were doing. And he went to that service that night. It was December the 28th, 1920, and God uh, met him there. He had a couple of friends that uh, had gone to the meetings earlier that week, and they'd been having afternoon prayer meetings in a big old farmhouse. And, and two of his buddies, Milford and Quincy Stairs, he met them at the door of that little country church in rural New Brunswick, Canada. And, and uh, he saw by the glow of God on their face that God had filled them with the Holy Ghost that they'd been hearing about in these services all week, and it made him mad. 
He ran to the front. He got down. That church wouldn't be as big as this platform. He ran to the front. He got down by a big old pipe organ, and he cried out to God when he hit his knees. He said, God, you forgot me. And God instantly filled him with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And that began the apostolic heritage in my family. Now, nobody in that revival in New Brunswick, Canada, it was only 1920, nobody had preached the precious and powerful truth of baptism in Jesus' name yet. Nobody there knew about that yet. That the apostles in the Bible had always baptized everyone in the name of Jesus. And so it was two months later in February... Now, uh, I told you, you don't want to come to New Brunswick in February. There's snow everywhere. You know, when, when, when you folks say blizzard, you think Dairy Queen. When I say blizzard, I think something totally different. i got to tell you. And, and, and it was February, and he was reading his Bible after he finished his chores on the old homestead. And he saw it. He went out. He uh, went back kind of in the back 40, and he got... Uh, up to the head of a stream covered with ice and uh, snow on the ground. And he knelt down in the snow and he punched a hole in the ice and he put one hand under that cold water and he raised the other hand to heaven and he said, God, would you take this as my baptism until you send somebody to baptize me in Jesus' name because there's nobody here that preaches this. Two months later, a great Bible teacher from your country John H. Deering from Twin Falls, Idaho. He had just happened to be preaching in the Northeast in New England. He just happened to feel led by God to go across into the Canadian uh, province of New Brunswick. He just happened to feel that. He just happened to feel to go to this little rural area where there's not a village even today. It's just a long country road with farms. And he went up and down that road knocking on farmhouse doors telling them why he was there. And he knocked on the door of one family named Majors, and they said, oh, you're not looking for us. You're looking for Leonard Parent. He's been talking this crazy nonsense about baptism in Jesus' name for the last two months. And that's how that great Bible teacher came to baptize my great uncle in Jesus' name for the remission of his sins. He came to your country, and he started a church in Pontiac, Michigan, and when he went to Michigan, he, he worked uh, in another church for a while under one of the bishops there and, and uh, just kind of getting his feet under him. And it was the 1930s, a long time ago, and he was delivering uh, milk with an old horse and wagon, big square glass bottles of milk. It was Royal Oak, Michigan, and it was winter. Winter has a bad effect on my family. And, and, and he slipped on an icy manhole cover and came down with the full weight of his body twisted on his leg and he broke his ankle to such a degree that the bones protruded out through the skin. It was a horrible break. Somehow he got himself thrown across his horse. He got uh, the horse to take him home and his precious little wife Ida, she helped push those bones back into place and bandage that ankle and uh, he went back and finished the day's work, because that's what you did in 1930. A broken leg uh, shouldn't keep you from going to work. And so that's what he did. They didn't have any health insurance or anything like that. And so then he came home from work, and by that time, that ankle in, under the bandage is just swollen like a little football. And a terrible, terrible wound. And uh, It was church that night, and so they were getting ready to go to church. Because just because you break your leg didn't mean you didn't go to church in the 1930s. 
sorry, that was, that was meddling, I think. And so they were getting ready to go to church, and, and he's getting ready, he's getting dressed, and his little wife, Ida, she called him daddy, and she's, she's, uh, she's helping him get his trousers over that huge swollen ankle. And uh, then he's, he's getting ready, and he gets uh, the shoe uh, on his foot, and then he takes his other shoe, and he stuffs it in his coat pocket, and it's stuck way out, and it looks really awkward. And Ida said, Daddy, what are you doing with that other shoe? And he said, Ida, I'm going to need that shoe on the way home from church. And so they went to church that night in Royal Oak, Michigan, and um, it was a foot washing service that night. And it was old style foot washing, great big basin there, pushing it down the row, and everybody's washing their feet in the same basin. And uh, another young minister in that church got down in front of Leonard, and, and uh, his name was Brother Kirby, and, and Leonard started unwrapping the bandages off that ankle so he could participate in foot washing. And Brother Kirby said... Leonard, you can't put your foot in this water. Everybody's, look at that wound. It's wide open. You can see the bone, Leonard. You can't put your foot in this water. Everybody's been washing their feet in this water. You'll get infection. And Leonard said, well, I guess this foot needs it the most. And he plunged that foot under the water of that big pail. And when it came out, there was not a wound. There was not a break. It was completely whole. And he wore his shoe home. And I pause to say that that's where I came from, and I don't deserve to be part of the apostolic church, but now that I'm here, I'm not looking for anything else. There's nothing like this on this planet. I thank God for truth. I thank God for our heritage. I thank God for pastors that stand in pulpits and explain to us the plan of God and the Word of God and the will of God, and I'm excited to be part of an apostolic church this morning. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening kindly to that. I know that's like kind of showing you bad home movies and making you sit there. When he was much older, uh, Leonard, uh, he passed away when I was in high school. And uh, when he was much older, he gave me, uh, his son gave me rather, his, his Bible. The Bible he had used for years. And uh, when I got that Bible, it, of course, it's just such a treasure to me. And and Uncle Leonard, I think there's a picture of him when he got elderly. Um, he, um, he wrote in all of the Bibles that he had. And he gave them to young ministers. And I got the one that he was using right up until uh, he died. In fact, he died with the Bible open on his lap, doing his morning devotions, waiting for Ida to bring him a cup of tea. And uh, in the front of his Bibles, he always wrote things because he intended to give them away to young ministers. And... Uh, I want to speak to you for a few moments this morning about something that he wrote in every Bible just about that he ever gave away, and it's written in the one I received. And it's something powerful and precious, and folks, we can't just kind of blend into the modern church world and forget the powerful truths that made us who we are. In the front of every Bible that he ever gave to a young minister, my great-uncle Leonard Parent would write these words. When in danger, plead the blood. And so I want to speak to you for a few moments this morning on this subject. The blood still speaks. The blood of Jesus Christ is still talking, speaking, 
for this church. Now, to, to preach this, I want to go back to the uh, opening chapters of the Word of God, in particular in, in uh, Genesis. The Bible tells us in Genesis, in the fourth chapter, that Adam knew Eve's wife, and, and she conceived, and she bare Cain. And Cain is the first son of Adam. And she says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And then she bare his brother Abel, and Abel uh, was the second son of Adam. So you've got these two brothers. And uh, the Bible tells us very specifically about these two boys. It tells us that Abel, he worked over here in the sheepfold. He was a, a keeper of sheep. He's the second son of Adam. And the Bible tells us that his brother Cain, he doesn't work like that. Uh, Cain works over here in the field. And uh, Cain is a tiller of the ground. He works in a whole different occupation. And so you've got uh, one boy who's a keeper of sheep. He cares for lambs. But you've got this boy, the older brother. He's uh, a tiller of the ground. He's a farmer. He knows what it is to plant seed and, and pray for rain and, and tend the crop and, and wait for his harvest. He knows that. That's Cain, the first son of Adam. His brother Abel is a totally different boy. He keeps sheep. He knows what it is to raise lambs. And There comes this point this is early in your Bible. This is only four chapters in where uh, God talks to those boys and he said, I want a sacrifice. Now we know from reading scripture exactly what kind of sacrifice God would have asked for because the Bible tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it is the blood that makes atonement for sin. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so we know exactly what God would have asked for for a sin offering. He would have asked for a lamb to be sacrificed, an animal to shed its blood as an atonement for sin. Now, over here, uh, Cain, the first son of Adam, he decides that, you know, um, I don't know whether he was too proud to ask his younger brother for a lamb, uh, whether he didn't want to buy it from him, whether he was too proud to ask him to give him a lamb, I don't know. But I do know this, that Cain just gathered up some vegetables, a bloodless offering, and brought it to God. Meanwhile, over here, Abel takes one of his finest lambs and he offers its life to God and sheds the blood. And so God's pleased with Abel's offering, but God is not happy at all with Cain's offering. And now you have this awkward standoff in Genesis chapter 4 where God and Cain are talking and God's angry with Cain and Cain's angry with God because God hasn't received his offering. And the Lord says, Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? And Cain, if you just do what I told you to do, if you just do what I asked you, you'd be fine. But Cain, if you're going to rebel, if you're going to try to go it without uh, an atoning offering for your sin, uh, let me tell you, Cain, sin is crouching like a lion at the door of your life, and it'll destroy you, Cain. Then we come to this awkward, horrible event. Genesis 4, verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field. Everybody say the field. the field. That Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. So here's, here's the picture. You've you got to get this. There comes a day. We know this from the context. There comes a day when Abel, the second son of Adam, leaves his territory and he goes to the territory of Cain, the first son of Adam. 
And while the second son of Adam is in the territory of the first son of Adam, the first son of Adam, Cain, lifts up wicked hands and kills Abel, the second son of Adam. And then he buries his body in the ground and walks away thinking, there, I've covered my tracks, it's not a problem. And then the Lord appears to Cain and says, Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Beware of people who answer a question with another question. And God's not having any of it. He said, Cain, what have you done? The voice of thy brother's blood, it's crying unto me from the ground. And now, Cain, you're cursed from that earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And here's the curse, Cain. Now, when you go back to your field and you till that ground and you plant that seed and you hope for rain and you wait for your harvest, that ground is no longer going to yield to you its strength because of your brother's blood, that innocent blood that you shed that's in that ground. Now, some of you Bible lovers and readers and scholars, you already know where we're going, but just let me catch up with you, okay? <laughs> Abel was killed in the field, not in the sheepfold. He left his territory, and he went to Cain's territory, and it was while Abel, the, first, or the second son of Adam, was in the territory of Cain, the first son of Adam, that Cain lifted up wicked hands. And he killed Abel, his younger brother. You know where we're going. Because your Bible calls humanity the first Adam. And calls Jesus <laughs> the second Adam. So it's not hard to figure out that God's painting us one powerful picture in the opening chapters of the Word of God. That Jesus, the second Adam, left His territory and He came to earth where we, humanity, the first Adam, we live. And while He was here on our territory, we lifted up wicked hands and we killed Him. We hung Him on a cross. But here's the good news. That wasn't a murder. That wasn't a martyr. That was an incredible victory because when his blood came out of his body and began seeping down into the cursed ground of this planet all of a sudden heaven said the same thing that they said in Genesis 4 wait a minute I hear the blood the blood has started talking and I've got good news for you. If you're sick in body, if your marriage is hurting, if your family is destroyed, if you're bound and addicted, the blood of Jesus Christ is still speaking today. Wow. Romans chapter 8, for what the law could not do. Keeping rules doesn't help you. It was too weak. It was in the flesh. But here's what did help us. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and He came to deal with sin. He came for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Calvary shut down the power of sin over you if you will just obey God. Isaiah the prophet saw this. It's amazing. Crucifixion as a form of torture and execution had not even been invented yet. But 600 years before Jesus walked on this earth, 
The old prophet Isaiah said these words in 53. He is despised and rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's seeing the crucifixion. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But it wasn't just an accident. There was a purpose. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And then Isaiah gets so anointed, he jumps from the past tense. He was, he was, he was into the present tense. And with his stripes, we are healed. What are you saying, Isaiah? I'm saying the blood is still flowing. I'm saying the blood is still active. I'm saying the blood is still speaking. God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? But God says, Cain, you can't fool me because I can hear the blood. I can hear your innocent brother's blood talking from the ground. Now, with my human ear, I can't hear your blood, which is a good thing because it would be kind of distracting with all of you here. But if I go to my physician, if I go to the doctor's office, he puts an instrument called a stethoscope either here or here, and he can hear the movement of my blood. So my doctor with a stethoscope can hear the blood move. It's called your heartbeat or your pulse. But if you had the ear of God, you can hear better than that. God said, I can hear the voice of the blood. I can hear the blood talking. Now, there's no accident here. It's a beautiful picture. Cain is the first son. He's like the first Adam who was sinful. Abel, he's the second son. He's like Jesus, the second Adam who shed his blood. And the New Testament writer, Paul, picks up on this. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 15. This is verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Somebody say, that's me. Because you've got a living soul. But the last Adam, he was made a quickening spirit. So Jesus was everything you are. He came in a human body. God manifest in flesh. But there was another dimension to him that you didn't have. The second Adam, he was made a quickening spirit. There was all of God inside of that body. All of God's ability was inside that body. But here's the good news of the gospel. If the spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if it ever gets inside of you, it'll quicken your mortal body. So you can have God move inside of you. You. you don't have to just get it from that verse look at verse 47 the first man is of the earth and he's earthy turn to your neighbor and say you're kind of earthy and watch that if that's your spouse be careful but the second man he's the Lord from heaven we're not just worshiping the dead founder of our religion. This isn't a memorial service this morning. Jesus is alive. He's the Lord from heaven. When you lift up his name, you're accessing all the power that God ever had or ever will have. Now the second half of Romans compares 
Romans chapter 5 rather, the second half of Romans chapter 5, it compares two Adams. It's all about Adam. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, so for that all have sinned. So, so here's the, the tragic story of human existence. Because Adam sinned, and we were in Adam, that means his sin passed through the bloodline to every human being who has ever been born. So if you could picture it like this, it's like Adam's at the head of the line, and there's this long line of humanity that goes back further than you could see, and we're all standing in line behind Adam as his descendants. And because he sinned, we sinned. And because he failed, we failed. You see, Paul isn't just saying you're like Adam. He's saying you were in Adam. That when Adam sinned, it did something to you. When Adam sinned, you sinned. Now, we don't like that. Bless God, this is America. We're democratic. We vote on things. So we don't like that. You know, God, I don't like your plan to put Adam in there as my legal representative because I didn't vote for Adam. If I'd have been in the Garden of Eden, we wouldn't have been in this mess. If you'd have been in the Garden of Eden, only heaven knows what we might have gone through. See, God appointed Adam as your legal representative. It doesn't seem fair to the Western mind because we didn't elect Adam to be our representative, but God created Adam precisely for that reason. And you don't like that system, and I don't either because I'm from a democratic country as well. I don't like that. But if it's possible for one man to sin and plunge the whole human race into sin, then if there could ever come another Adam who never sinned, who was perfect and sinless and holy and righteous, then if one man's sin could put us all in trouble, then another man's righteousness could get us all out of trouble. That's called the second Adam, Jesus Christ. It's why we get so excited when we have the privilege of coming into church and worshiping him. He's the Adam that I'm behind. I changed lines and I got over here. When I was in this line, everything that was true of Adam became true of me. He was a sinner, I was a sinner. He was unholy, I was unholy. He was bound, I was bound. Everything that Adam had the potential of doing, I had the potential of doing. But now, I've changed lines. I've been born again of the water and the Spirit. And so now, everything that Jesus is, I get it. Everything that Jesus can do, I receive it. You talk about a reason to give God a great praise. If that isn't reason enough, I don't know what would be. I used to be bound, but now I'm free. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Paul, he, he can't get out of it. Romans 5, he, he can't get out of it. Verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more, he likes that phrase, much more, 
the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, it has abounded unto many. It's amazing. Adam was disobedient, but Jesus was obedient. Adam broke the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law. Adam brought offense, but Jesus brought grace. Adam brought bondage, but Jesus brought freedom. Adam brought life, but brought death, but Jesus brought life. Adam brought condemnation, but Jesus brought us justification. It's an amazing thing. Johnny James said it this way, the first Adam cursed us. Second Adam blessed us. First Adam hurt us, but the second Adam, he healed us. The first Adam put us out, but the second Adam, he brought us in. The first Adam pushed us down, but the second Adam, he lifted us up. The first Adam put us on the road to hell, but the second Adam has put us on the road to heaven. The first Adam ate off a tree. The second Adam died on a tree. You know, uh, even a great church like this is not perfect. For one, you invited me to be here. And, and, and you know, churches for years have, have, have kind of um, given the apple bad press. You know, they have. We send innocent, precious, impressionable little Sunday school children home clutching a paper they've colored with a red crayon and it's Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden holding a half-eaten apple. Who told you that? The Bible doesn't say it was an apple. Think about this, uh, Genesis 3 and 7. When Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God, and they know that they're naked, and their sin is now ashamed of them, and they reach for leaves to cover their nakedness, what kind of leaves do they reach for? Fig leaves. It wasn't an apple, it was a fig. Now, you say, I, I don't know if that's true. Well, you can be wrong, it's fine. But it's well documented in the ancient Jewish literature that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was actually a fig tree. Uh, the, many Jewish writings, the Midrash says, it was, quote, the fig leaf which brought remorse to the world. So it was a fig tree that got us all in this mess when Adam and Eve sinned. Now, that's amazing, but here's what's more amazing. There's this odd little story in the Gospels. Matthew and Mark both record it. Jesus is just a couple of days, about three days from his crucifixion. It's the week of his crucifixion. He and his disciples are staying in Bethany, and every morning they make the journey into Jerusalem. They do that every day, the week just before Jesus dies on the cross. And There's this odd little story that's always seemed quite unfair to me. Jesus is walking with his disciples into Jerusalem one of those mornings from Bethany and he sees a fig tree by the side of the road. And he walks over and he rustles around among the leaves and there's no figs there to eat. Now the Bible says specifically in Mark 11 that the time of figs was not yet. Now Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He created that fig tree to bear figs some parts of the year and not bear figs the other parts of the year. So it's not really fair for him who created the fig tree to walk over to the fig tree and look for figs when the time of figs is not yet and he told the tree not to bear figs in that season. And he looks at the fig tree and there's no fruit and he curses 
the fig tree and keeps on going. And the next morning, he's doing the same little trek with his disciples. And, uh, of course, the disciples, they're so uh, uh, incredible. And Peter's always the one that opens his mouth first. He says, hey, Jesus, look at that. The tree you cursed, it's dried up. Now, that's kind of unfair to that poor little fig tree. And we've taught all kinds of things and tried to manipulate that and massage that to make it a parable about unfruitfulness, but it's really not. There's something much more momentous than that. On his way into Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to be crucified for the sins of the world, on his way up the road, he sees the same kind of tree that got us into trouble in the Garden of Eden in the first place when the first Adam walked over and ate of the fruit of the fig tree. This time, the second Adam walks over and he doesn't partake of the fruit of the tree. And then he curses that tree because he's on the way to another tree to give his life and shed his blood for the sins of the world. That's what's going on there. I thank God that when you come to Jesus, your past is past and the curse is cursed and the bondage is broken. Hmm, my goodness. So, so uh, back to, uh, back to uh, the sermon somewhere. Well, you guys have been picking on that poor apple. I just had to defend it. The first Adam, he ate of the fruit of the tree and he brought death. The second Adam could not find any figs to eat. He did not partake of sin. And so the writers of Scripture, they sum up this Jesus. Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted, just like you, just like me. But the difference with Jesus was, yet without sin. He went through everything you've ever gone through, but he didn't sin. He didn't lose it. He didn't stomp out. He didn't get angry. He didn't throw up his hands and give up. He went through everything you've been through. He lost friends through death. He, he was brutally assaulted. He, he was talked about. He was maligned and ridiculed, yet without sin. Now, Paul, he can't let it go in Romans 5. It's all about these two Adams. In verse 20, he says this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. You know why God gives you laws in his book, in the Bible? Some people don't like that. Well, I don't like that. It's a bunch of rules, a bunch of laws. You want to thank God for those laws because if it wasn't for those laws you wouldn't know how badly in trouble you were and how much you needed salvation and you'd be oblivious and you'd end up in hell for eternity. You know how it is. How many drivers do I have in this room? Okay, good. Some of you are lying right now in church. Okay, so, so we've got all these drivers here. You know what it is. Why do they put signs on Interstate 95? Because if they didn't, you'd be going 180 miles an hour. That's why. And the rest of us don't like it when you drive 180 miles an hour, especially if we're in the car or if we're coming the other way. And the signs are there every so often to remind you, you go higher than this, you're in trouble. And without that, without that rule, we plunge ourselves into all kinds of mess. And so the laws in God's word are to help us, not to hurt us. But watch what Paul said. 
The law entered so the offense might abound. So you'd know how much in trouble you were. But where sin abounded, <laughs> grace did much more abound. What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying that as much trouble you can get into in sin, there's still more grace that can pull you out of trouble. I'm saying that as bound as you can get your life, there's still some incredible power in grace that will set you free. Now here's my point this morning. When Abel left his territory and walked to the territory of Cain, and Cain lifted up wicked hands and shed his brother's innocent blood. And Abel's body was thrown hastily into a, a, a pit. And Cain covered it over and walked away and thought, there, that's the end of that. When Abel's blood seeped into the sin-cursed soil of this planet, his blood instantly became his defense attorney, pleading his case. And God from heaven said, wait a minute, something just shifted. I can hear his blood and I'll get justice. Now again, God's painting you one powerful picture. Because 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 says that none of the princes of this world knew or understood the wisdom of God. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The devil thought his greatest victory was the day he took Jesus of Nazareth, orchestrated angry mobs and, and unfair trials and all kinds of persecution. The devil thought his greatest victory was the day that he got Jesus of Nazareth hanging on that cross on the hill Golgotha outside the north wall of Jerusalem. That's when he walked away from the, the tomb of Jesus and he said, well there, that should take care of that. But what the devil couldn't see, he didn't understand, God blinded his eyes. When the sinless blood of Jesus, not just innocent blood, sinless blood, when it came streaming down that old rugged cross and his blood touched the soil of our planet, all of a sudden everybody in heaven snapped to attention and something had changed in the supernatural realm. People say kind of dumb things every once in a while. They say, well, you know, I'm saved by the life of Jesus. You're not saved by the life of Jesus. In fact, the life of Jesus actually condemns you because you've been imperfect and He lived a perfect life. You've been sinful and He lived a sinless life. So the life of Jesus doesn't help me at all. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus that makes everything new for me. Because as long as Jesus' blood was inside his body, it didn't do any more for me than anybody else's blood. But when his blood came streaming out of his body, it became shed blood. It became atoning blood. It became redeeming blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But because his blood has been shed I can be a brand new person music team if you come back uh, let me wind up here first Peter Peter gets a hold of this chapter 1 he said for as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things it wasn't silver and gold you couldn't buy your way into an apostolic church and it's not from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. This isn't just a religion that's passed down from generation to generation. So how were you saved then? 
If it's not by tradition, if it didn't come from some family heritage, if, if you can't buy your way in, if you can't do enough good to get here, then how in the world are you redeemed? Next verse. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. The writer of Hebrews says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but it was by His own blood that He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Paul said it this way to the elders of Ephesus, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. And be careful, gentlemen, be careful, pastors, feed the church of God because He has purchased the church with His own blood. When in the world did God Almighty ever have blood to shed? Only one time when He robed Himself in flesh and He let them take Him to the cross. And when that blood was shed, that wasn't any ordinary murder victim. That was God making a way possible for you to be saved and changed and healed and blessed and delivered and free. Look at this, just just a couple more scriptures. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. And watch this. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. Here's what the writer's saying. Abel died 4,000 years before the writer of Hebrews penned those words. And the writer of Hebrews said, His innocent blood made such a mark in heaven that even that innocent human blood of an innocent man named Abel, 4,000 years later, God hadn't forgot. And the innocent blood of Abel and the sacrifice he made in obedience to God was still speaking even though he'd been dead for 4,000 years. But we haven't come to the blood of an innocent man. The next chapter of Hebrews, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, watch, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. If Abel died 4,000 years before the writer of Hebrews wrote, And God and heaven could still hear His innocent human blood speaking 4,000 years later. How loud do you think the blood of Jesus, which was not just innocent blood, it was sinless blood, it was holy blood, it was blood that God put in that body. How much more do you think the blood of God is speaking for the church today? Great Uncle Leonard, he had it right. When you get in trouble, when you get in danger, when the enemy's attacking your home, when the devil's wreaking havoc in your marriage, when the devil's after your kids, when Satan's after your mind, don't just stand there and let the enemy beat up on you. Square your shoulders, plant your feet, and plead the blood. I plead the blood. The blood is still speaking for me. The blood still covers me. I am not a victim. I am more than a conqueror through him that loved me. Would you stand all over this room? Would you get your hands in the air? And would you get your voice higher than your hands and give God a great praise in this room this morning? I can hear the blood speaking for the people of God. 
I hear the blood devil, it's greater than you are. I hear the blood devil, it's greater than sickness. It's greater than bondage. It's greater than addiction. Just, just one last moment, and then we're going to come to the front. And I hope you'll join us today. I don't know all your customs here. I'm a visitor like many of you are. But, but, but here's what I know. There's something about making a move toward God. And we're going to close this service as family, praying for and with each other. And you need to be part of it. And if you're a guest, you can even come first. We'll, we'll open this altar for you in just a moment. Because here's what I know, the blood of Jesus Christ is still speaking and flowing and moving and acting this morning. You may have come in here a drug addict, you can leave free. You may have come in here an alcoholic of four generations deep, but you can leave here free. Now, now, now here, here's, here's what you got to understand. See, Cain, that first son of Adam, that wicked son, he was a farmer. He knew what it was to plant seeds. And he knew if he planted seeds early enough and he watered that ground and he tended that crop and he waited for harvest, he knew he'd get his harvest. He was a farmer. He knew how harvests worked. But when that innocent blood of his brother saturated that ground, God said, this ground is no longer going to yield to you its strength. Cain, you can plant all the seed you want. You can water the ground all you want. But it's not going to give you the same result. You're not going to get the same harvest. <laughs> Some of you, when you were six years old, when you were 10, when you were 15, when you were in college, when you were in high school, when you got your first job, somebody abused you, misused you, hurt you. And the devil, what he was trying to do was get that seed of hurt and pain and sin in your life early enough. And all these years, he's been sitting back having sown seeds of hurt and bitterness and anger and lust. He's sown all kinds of seed in your life. He's sown seed where people just about destroyed you. And he's been sitting back watering that seed, tending that ground, waiting for his harvest. He knew if he could get somebody to abuse somebody in this room when you were 6 or when you were 12, he knew that you'd grow up and by the time you were 40 years old, you'd be a bitter, hateful person and you'd be totally destroyed. But here's what he wasn't counting on. The blood entered this ground. And so devil, you can try to sow whatever kind of seed you want, but the blood has entered this ground. And so this ground doesn't yield to you the same harvest anymore. Would you lift your hands one more time? Close your eyes for just a moment and call upon the Lord. What's that mean? That just means, Jesus, I need your help this morning. Jesus, I need your touch this morning. Jesus, my marriage, I think it's hopeless, but I'm willing to give you a shot. I'm willing to let the blood that you shed help me. Jesus, I'm so bound, nobody even knows how bad I'm hurting, but I'm willing to give your precious blood a shot in my life. If you or somebody you love is hurting, is wounded, is in trouble. I want you to get down to the altar right now as quick as you can. If you or somebody you love 
Somebody in your life, they have a need. I want you to come. There's going to be some parents show up at this altar because they've got some teenagers or they've got some adult children and the devil has tried to destroy their life and destroy their home and they're just tired of it. So this morning, we're going to do what my great uncle Leonard taught us to do. We're going to plead the blood. We're going to push the devil back. We're going to beat him because it's not our power. It's the power of Jesus. As you come to the altar, would you step in as close as you can? Make room for everybody that wants to come. And we're going to get in position for a minute, and then we're going to go to prayer. Somebody shout, I plead the blood. That's exactly what we're going to do. Can you take a couple steps forward? There's still people coming. We want to make room for as many people as we can. Everybody's welcome in the altar. Nobody's excluded. Everybody's important. <laughs> Somebody lift up a praise just before we pray. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Now, right now, I'd like you to help me. I'd like you to reach over to somebody and I'd like you to either take them by the hand and lift that hand with yours or maybe put your hand on their shoulder. Just connect in some way. If you're not comfortable, that's okay. You can just stand there. But if you would help me, that would be really good. Now, this is not about your prayer. This is about the power of Jesus' name and the power of His blood. I want you to begin to pray right now that bondage would be broken, that addiction would be shattered, that chains would fall off, that marriages would be healed, that families would be delivered, that backsliders would come back home. And here's how you do it. God, I plead your blood. I plead your blood. The devil has no right to mess up my home. The devil has no authority to mess up my marriage. I plead the blood. I plead the blood. I plead the blood. Jesus! 